when you're ready. Let's start this game. Welcome to Unstacked and Let's Unwind with New York Times bestselling and Lambda Literary Award winning author T.J. Klune. Let's find out about his writing process and newest novel, In the Lives of Puppets. Hey, this is Sarah from the Bay County Public Library. Hey, this is Stephen from the Huntsville Madison County Public Library. And this is T.J. Klune. I am the author of many, many books. People probably know me from The House in the Cerulean Sea, Under the Whispering Door, the Green Creek series, and yes, my most recent novel, In the Lives of Puppets, which came out in April. Can you introduce our listeners to your newest novel, In the Lives of Puppets? Yes, In the Lives of Puppets is a queer reimagining of the fable Carlo Collodi's The Adventures of Pinocchio, but instead of involving puppetry, it involves machines. And I wanted to explore a world where where humanity was on its last legs and what did it look like for the main character in this book victor to be human in a world where humanity is somewhat lost and i wanted to see through the lens of of some of the science fiction and fantasy greats while this is a reimagining of pinocchio i pulled from many different things there's mary shelley's frankenstein there is the animated feature that traumatized a wave of children in the 80s called the brave little toaster there is The Matrix, there is Kubrick's and Spielberg's AI. There's just a bunch of different things. Science fiction and fantasy has been my great love. So I wanted to pull all the things that I love about it and put it into one book. And there's also even like Wizard of Oz. I could feel a little bit of that as oh, well as ab- with absolutely. Family Robinson. Yes. Yeah. The Wizard of Oz, as a quick side note, if you have never, ever seen The Wizard of Oz on the big screen, it is something that you must do because it changes the way you look at color. Even though we all know color, television, color, movies, everything, it's been around for decades. Seeing the moment that Kansas goes to Oz is just an extraordinary experience that I think everybody should have. Oh, we need it back on the big screen. I don't think I've had an opportunity to see it on the on the oh, large. Oh, it's, it's, it's life-changing. It was, just, it was just one of the best movie-going experiences of my life. And how do you kind of balance that, paying um, homage to the classics, but then just really making it uniquely your own story? For me, it's not as hard as some people might think, because for better or worse, my characters are uniquely me. They are they are something that I am known to write. I am known to write characters who might at first blush appear to just be quirky and, and interesting, but they actually have wildlife teeming underneath. And I, I just find that to be absolutely fascinating to be able to go that direction with them. I, I am a very much a character-driven writer. And so when I am absolutely focused on what I'm writing, I'm thinking about all the characters and what I'm building towards and what I like to do with them. I I don't know. It's it's something very interesting for me to be able to see a character like Rambo come to life. Rambo is a socially anxious room of vacuum with a heart of gold. And, and to be able to bring something like that to life is just, it's one of those things that after this book came out, it really hit me just how weird this novel is. And I think it's fascinating how the main characters of this book are a human being named Victor and a room of vacuum cleaner and a sociopathic nursing machine. That is just, come on, that's me. That's what I do. (laughs) I love them all. All of the characters were fantastic. Thank you. 
Puppets kind of centers around uh, finding family and creating things out of spare parts. You, you have kind of a uh, romantic writing past. How do you go about taking those found families and those that romance aspect and kind of pushing forward the different types of relationships that are you, you grow in these novels? Yeah, so I used to be much more romance-focused in the earlier part of my career. It's just because that's what I was writing and that's what I was interested in. But as I've gone, I mean, my first book came out when I was in my 20s. I'm now 41 years old. And so, of course, you know, priorities change, things change. I've grown up from the person that I used to be. And romance, while it's all well and good, isn't necessarily at the forefront of what I'm thinking about because as I've gotten older, I've realized that familial and platonic and friendship love is just as important as romantic love is. You can't, you can't survive on romance alone. You can't. You have to have other types of relationships in your life, other types of love. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the, the term found family because I'm sure that many, many of your listeners are very much aware of the so-called tropification of found family. That's a big marketing tool that gets used. It's been used on my books and I, I get it. I get why, but I would urge your readers or your listeners to remember that found family comes from a very real place. It comes from queer people, from queer society, where many of us did not get to have the love and respect and joy from our parental figures or our guardians that straight kids got to have. I am an example of that. My family is made up of my sister, my brother, and everybody else in our family is not related by blood because we made the choice to deny bigotry, to deny homophobia, to deny hatred, and find people who love us for who we are. And I think it's very important for, for everyone to remember that when you hear found family used in fiction, it's coming from a very real place. And especially since we're recording this during Pride Month, I think it's important to remember that. Found family is a source of pride for queer people. The origin story of the Rambo character is delightful. Could you share that with yeah. our audience? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not even just the origin story of, of Rambo. It's the origin story of this entire book. And it feels really bad to say out loud that this book exists because of capitalism. But essentially, <laughs> is it is what it is because... I'd been playing around with doing a retelling of Pinocchio because at the time it was one of those stories that didn't have a lot of retelling. So of course, right when I get ready to release this book in 2023, because I wrote it in 2019, I released this book in 2023 and now there's like 30 different Pinocchio adaptations being released all at the same time. I'm like, come on guys, come on. But this book exists because one day, I decided to buy a Roomba vacuum cleaner for my house. And something that humans, one of the things that I love the most, humanity will disappoint me. They're cruel, destructive, just dark, dark people. But sometimes humanity just surprises me. And one thing I love about humanity is how we tend to anthropomorphize or give human-like qualities to inhuman things. It's just this weird little quirk of our brains that we do that. So of course. I had to put googly eyes on my little new vacuum cleaner that I got because he needed them and I gave him a name. His name is Hank. I don't need to explain why, just deal with it. It's Hank. And what happened is when you first turn on one of these vacuum cleaners, they have to map out your house so they know where to go. And this, this dumb little robot 
got itself stuck in the corner of my house and made the saddest little beeping sound that I have ever heard. And it's never happened to me before. And it's never happened to me since. But this entire story, this entire world just exploded in my head. I made these instant connections between the fable, the fairy tale, the adventures of Pinocchio to who I wanted. And I knew who Rambo was going to be. I knew who Nurse Ratched was going to be. And she existed because if there's going to be a human raised by machines, and that human will need some kind of medical care or intervention in case something happens. So that's why she's there. But what if she's a sociopath? And it's, you know, all these different things come together. But the biggest thing that I took away from, from buying that vacuum cleaner and coming up with the character of Nurse Ratched and Rambo is that they are, in essence, the Jiminy Cricket characters. They are the talking cricket. They are the id, the ego. They are Victor's conscience. You have Rambo, who represents fear and curiosity and bravery. You have Nurse Ratched, who represents anger and cynicism and sarcasm. And I just, I find that fascinating that these three beings, even though they're complete themselves individually, they complete each other in ways that you would not expect. And it has, you know, part of that has to do with Victor being, or them being Victor's conscience, quote unquote, but it also has to do with the fact that even though they are not human, these machines feel a variation of love for Victor, for Geo, Victor's father. They, they do feel something, an approximation of it. And I just love being able to see them grow as Victor did throughout the story. Kind of getting reprogrammed in a way. And I did see their growth, especially like Nurse Ratchet. She may be a psychopath, but mm -hmm. there's so many parts where there's that genuine love for Victor and protectiveness over the family. Oh yeah, absolutely. Nurse Ratchet is kind of like my sister. We She's not a sociopath. She's not a psychopath. But when we were kids, she and I, we would fight. We're two, I was the oldest. She was two years younger than, from, than me and she could kick my ass <laughs> any day of the week. And now she's she's my favorite person in the entire world. I, I think she's the coolest person in the world. So of course I'd want to put little bits of her in that. From what I understand, this is kind of the third part of an unofficial trilogy mm -hmm. kind of kindness where you start with kindness toward others, kindness to yourself, and then kindness toward those who seem awful and probably are awful in some sense. What does it take to accept being kind to others that, that are awful people? Yeah, I, and I'm glad that Sarah, when you when you were speaking just a moment before, you brought up deprogramming, and that's kind of what this is. Is kind of what it is 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 deprogramming. Look, we can we can talk to her blue in the face the real world implications that are going on right now, especially around the queer community and especially around trans people. That is, uh, trans the trans community, the queer community as a whole are under attack in ways that we haven't seen since, oh, I don't know, the 70s, 80s and AIDS crisis and when Reagan let an entire generation of queer men die. We haven't seen this kind of vitriol since then. And so it does make you wonder, do people like that deserve kindness? Do they? Do those people deserve forgiveness for, for what they've done? Because a large part of In the Lives of Puppets is about forgiveness, not only the act of forgiveness, but it also brings up the question of who has the right to forgive. Is it the person affected? Is it a community? Is it just a random person that, that says, you know what, I understand what they did was wrong, but you know, we can hopefully move forward. And that is a very sticky, sticky situation to be in because forgiveness is not necessary 
but it is also an important act to, to moving past something. So when I try to think of the real world implications behind what we're going on right now and, and showing kindness to people who are genuinely awful, my big thing is killing people with kindness. And that is, you can be as cruel, you can be as bigoted, you can be as disgusting as you want to be. That's totally fine. But you are not going to hurt me. You are not going to affect me because I know that you're not a good person. And I know that. And, and I will still attempt to show you kindness because you are a human being. But that only goes so far. Because if you start to come from my community, if you start to actively come from me and mine, kindness is not something that I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about what I can do to protect my community, my family, and what's mine. And I think that's what Victor goes through too. He understands that, that forgiveness, while it may be important, sometimes there are much bigger things at play and some things that need to have that kind of focus. So while Victor's journey at the beginning could be one of searching for an idea of forgiveness, I also think it's about him learning what his own strength is and that sometimes you don't have to forgive. You can still be angry. You can still be upset and nobody has the right to take that away from you. And then I think part of it is Victor is kind of finding what he values as important through the whole thing because there is the forgiveness, but then who's important in his life and and how much he's going to stick out for them, which especially right. with the Pinocchio tie and there's your white lies that you've kind of embedded in there. Right. And then, and then the big lies that might be in there and um, no spoilers, but I, I loved that tie to Pinocchio and then how it worked within your book. I love that there's a, a line that, that I won't, um, it, it's not a spoiler to say, but there's a line that a conversation Victor has with another character where he says as something to the effect of, I don't have to love who you were then, I can love the person you are now. And mm -hmm. I think that's something so important to remember because I have met many people in my life, in, in my career, especially where who have told me they were once a homophobic person, they were once a transphobic person, they were once a bigoted person. And you know what it took? Finding somebody in their own family who's from that community. And that sucks. That sucks that it has to take that. That sucks that it has to put all the weight of ending bigotry on one person. But I have heard from so many people that when they actually have real life, day-to-day, face-to-face dealings with queer people, they're like, oh, what was I afraid of? What was I hating? What was that? And does it happen as much as I would like? No. Does it happen often? Yes, it absolutely does. So if there's hope for them, I think there's hope for many. But the problem is, is that so many people are so deeply mired in their bigotry that they don't want to see a way out. And tangent, you research a lot prior to your writing process, even as a fantasy author. And the research really grounds your books into this reality, making it more speculative fiction. Mm -hmm. um, how do you begin your research process? Well, it, it typically when it comes, well, first and foremost, I know nothing about robots. <laughs> I know nothing about machines. I don't know how any of that stuff works. So I naturally wanted to start there. And then I had to make a decision. Do I want to make this hard sci-fi 
where the robotics and the machines are fully explained and you get you get long, long explanations of how the, each individual machine works? Or do I want to keep the fairy tale like quality of the story where instead of here is how machines work definitively, it's this idea of, okay, maybe there's just a little bit of magic involved, not necessarily actual spells cast or anything like that, but the magic of the world the magic of the unknown, the mystery of, of the universe. And I just love that idea of having this be a science fiction story, but it is so firmly rooted in fantasy that to say it's just science fiction would be a, a lie. But so researching that, once I did that, I still had to look up a lot because I have ADHD. And when something interests me, I tend to hyperfixate. And so, of course, this story was very interesting to me. So I hyperfixated on all the little details. I outline everything before I even start putting a word to page. My outlines are unnecessarily extensive. They are ridiculous, to be honest. The 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 outline for In the Lives of Puppets alone was 60,000 words, and it was not even stuff that I put in the book. I When I am writing a book, I want to be as enmeshed in that world as I possibly can be. So when I'm writing these outlines, I'm putting in things that will never go in the book, but they're for me. They're for me. So I know these characters, like I know Victor's birthday. I know his favorite foods. I know what he wishes he could do when he gets older. I know what he's scared of. I know the same things about Rambo. I know the same things about Nurse Ratched, Geo, Hap. I know all of these things, things that aren't necessarily meant for the reader, but are allow me to know these characters better than, than I did when I first met them. A lot, a lot of time is spent outlining, researching, and then when I'm ready, that's when I'll sit down to write. Because when I'm actually ready to write, I am a very, very fast writer. It took me about six months of research for In the Lives of Puppets, and I wrote the book itself in three months. Because that's how that's how I work. Because I need to do as much research as I can. So when I get into the story, I'm not hitting a wall where I have to be like, oh, I didn't look up any of this stuff. Now I have to know what this is. At the same time, my outline isn't set in stone. It's basically a guide map. So if something comes up as it does, I will be able to course correct or make changes. The only thing that sucks about doing it that way is when you are like writing 80,000 words into a story, you're getting it, you're in the groove, everything is going well. And then all of a sudden you're struck by an idea that you realize you'd have to go back and change everything that you'd already written. That's happened to me a couple of times. And God, I know it sounds like, whoa, that sounds so cool. No, it's not. It sucks because I have to go back and rewrite pages upon pages upon pages because my stupid brain came up with a really good idea. <laughs> I just want to take a moment to circle back on the, the fact that you write a novel to write a novel. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, it is by far not the most efficient way to do things, but it works for me. It's just, it is... It's so, like I said, like I said, the outlines are ridiculous. They are just these documents that are just bullet points and notes and random things bolded because oh, those are things that I need to desperately remember. But yeah, it, it is. My, I write a novel to write a novel, yes. <laughs> Jumping back to, uh, you, you mentioned the ADHD. Uh, a lot of the characters that you, you write not just in this, but going back into your, your work history, tend to have a neurodivergent kind of traits. Mm-hmm. What is it like creating characters that obviously connect to people with those traits? When I was a kid, I never got to see myself 
in books. I never got to see a queer kid with ADHD. I never got to see people with ADHD. And even if I did, it was not good. It was this idea that ADHD or ADD or people with autism who all fall under the neurodivergent umbrella, that they were something to be cured, that we were broken, that we needed to be fixed. That's not the case. A kid with ADHD becomes a teenager with ADHD who becomes an adult with ADHD. That's just how it is. We don't need to be cured because we're or fixed because we're not broken. It's it's not how it is. Um, when I was younger, my ADHD used to be a big block for me because my parents refused to take me to go get tested. I had to go get tested myself when I became of age and got the diagnosis and spent a lot of time trying to figure out what, if any medication would work for me. And it felt like I was well, I was, I was drugged. I felt not like myself all the time. And I remember, you know, thinking, you know, as a teenager does, oh, nobody ever feels like this. Nobody's ever felt this way before. And, but, and, but the thing is growing up, I, I was a teenager in the nineties. I didn't know anybody else with ADHD. We didn't have the internet. The, the internet wasn't a thing. And we didn't, I, I, there was no books or movies or television shows about people with ADHD. And I always found that to be just baffling. So when I got older, I and I started getting into publishing, I just I told myself that if I was going to do this, that I would write stories for people like me who never got to see themselves in books. Because look, regardless of how far we think we've come, and even though the last year has shown that bigotry will raise its head no matter what, but I think that we sometimes forget that even living in 2023, there are still people in rural communities who don't get to see themselves, who don't really get to have the community that they need. And if I write a book for that one person who was like me, 15, 16 years old, and never got to see themselves in a book, they finally get to do that, then I've set out to do the job that I wanted to do. That's the most important thing for me is being able to have people bring one of my books to me and said, this made me feel seen for the first time in my life. There is nothing, nothing more magical than finding yourself in a book. That's just, it's illuminating in ways that are even hard to explain. And I, people listening might not, if you're not from a poor rural area, you might not understand that access to those kinds of things is still a very tough thing to do, especially now with libraries under attack. By, by people, especially in rural communities, you have rural communities whose libraries are refusing to take down pride displays are now being voted to be defunded. And that's, that's extraordinary to me. So I think I write for everybody who wants to read my books, but I write for my, with my queer audience in mind. You had go. one that goes next because I was like, well, now I'm tangenting again. So <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna go on a little tangent myself because I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to jump back a little bit because we were talking about at the beginning that long list of of influences with like uh, the Brave Little Toaster, Wizard of Oz, etc. Obviously there is a media tie to the writing. How do you balance your media diet with your writing habits? I never watch or read or play video games or do anything that is even remotely tangentially related to what I'm writing. So I have not seen any of the Pinocchio reboots. Mm -hmm. I have not seen any of, I have, there's a new Pinocchio, like hardcore sword and slasher video game that I really wanted to play, but I won't because it's, it's their version of Pinocchio. There's TV shows that do all that. I, 
for example, too, I have a book that comes out next week. My my publisher bought the rights to my Green Creek series, and they're re-releasing those in hardcover. And those are about werewolves. I never thought I would write about werewolves ever, and I won't read werewolf books now. I won't. I won't do that because if I do, either a I'll be that jerk who's like, oh well, I would have done this a little bit differently, blah blah blah, or b I would have been like. They did it so much better than me. <laughs> Why would I do that? So yeah, anything that I'm writing in, whatever genre or whatever subgenre I'm writing in, I tend to avoid everything in that subgenre like the plague while I'm working on it because I don't want to be influenced in any way, shape, or form by what somebody else is doing. Like my novel, Under the Whispering Door, that came out in 2021, which is about the afterlife, or not necessarily even the afterlife, it's about the stop between life and death originally that novel was going to be about the bureaucracy of the afterlife from one very small scene taken in the movie Beetlejuice. There's a scene where Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin go to this essentially corporate office of the afterlife and they have to go through all the paperwork. And I was like, oh my God, wouldn't that be so cool to have a whole novel about that kind of thing? And then guess what? The Good Place came out on NBC and did it better than I ever could. So I had to go in a different direction because they did the they did basically so close to what I wanted to do that I was like, oh man, somebody got there first. Damn it. I had to redo my entire story in a different way. I hadn't I hadn't written very much. So it wasn't that big of a deal. But it's just one of those things where sometimes people get to your idea first because they had the same idea and oh God, it's better. <laughs> So two things out of that. When you say that, all I can think of is a football player walking up going, I don't think we survived the crash, coach. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Uh, how long does that moratorium uh, go on? I have, I wrote Wolf Song, the first book in the Green Creek series in 2014. It was released in 2016. There's three more books in that series after that. I have not read a werewolf anything since 2014. <laughs> oh, I won't do that. I probably... Won't see the the Pinocchio. I mean, Guillermo del Toro directed an animated version. He is one of my favorite filmmakers of all time, but I can't do it <laughs> because I'm like, oh, it's just it was so funny to me that nobody did anything with Pinocchio forever. And then all of a sudden, here's three different Pinocchio movies. One of them has Tom Hanks. One is directed by Guillermo del Toro. And it's just like, come on, guys, leave some for the rest of us. And you play with words and phrases in such a fun way in all of your books, especially for in this one, um, how robots might not fully have a grasp on the English language in the same way. Can you share how you use that element of language in your writing, just in general, as well as in dialogue and banter? Words are my favorite thing in the world. Words are extraordinary. Words can make people laugh. They can make people cry. They can make them angry. They can make them swoon. Words have started religions, cults, wars. You know, it's it's extraordinary to me the power that words have. And I love wordplay. I love I love dialogue. I love characterization. I love all that. And so something that not a lot of people know about me, and this is, again, one of those things that is like kind of explains why uh, when I uh, am writing the book, it's the quickest thing when I'm researching the book, it's not. And then the after part, when I'm editing the book, like the first draft, that takes forever. Why? Because I do this thing where I read all of my dialogue out loud. Every piece of dialogue that's in the book, 
for the most part, I read out loud because I want to make sure it sounds like an actual person or in this case, machine talking. You know, when you're reading a book and the language is not necessarily elevated, but it's very clear that they found a thesaurus that <laughs> they wanted to use, or they found a word that they really like that's complicated and they want to use that word. I'm like, okay, you do that. But for me, I want my people to sound like people. I want I want my my kids to not sound like adults. I want them to sound like kids. I want my machine Rambo. I want him to be like basically a, a an eight year old boy. And that's that's how I think of him. Is he's like a boy who also happens to have the heart and soul of a golden retriever. I mean, that's just that's how it is. And so dialogue is something that I strive for. It's something probably that I've worked the hardest on in my career, but I just, I love, I love interplay between people. I love, I love characters who love each other, but rib each other too. I love characters who, when they talk to each other, they, they hold them to account. They don't let their, Nurse Ratched in particular is wonderful about that in this book. She, while she may be threatening anything and everything around her, she holds Vic to account when he starts getting down on himself or when he's thinking ideas that aren't the best, she will tell him that. And I think we all need somebody that, like that in our lives. Oh, it's, it, the dialogue is like one of the my most favorite parts. And then I have listened to the your last three all in audiobook format. So um, having your narrators, you have some wonderful narrators. That you oh, God, with. yes. Yeah. Um, Daniel Henning did the narration for Cerulean Sea and In the Lives of Puppets and Kirk Graves did it for Under the Whispering Door. So good. And yes, they bring your characters to life. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I've worked with Kirk for many, many years. Um, and Daniel, I had not heard of before. I, when I got signed with Macmillan and Tor, I didn't know if I could say, hey, this is who I want to be my narrator. I didn't know if I had any power whatsoever. So I kind of just went with the flow and the Macmillan audio department said, hey, I know this guy. His name is Daniel. You should listen to him. And I listened to his audition with the house in the Cerulean Sea. And here's the thing. I cannot listen to my own audiobooks because it's very weird for me to hear my own books read to me. So that's why when I was an indie and self-published author, I hired people to do that for me so I didn't have to do it. But when you get something like an audition, you have to listen because you have to see how they do it. So I clicked on the audition. There was like three or four different audition links. So I just clicked on one. And it was immediately hearing Daniel do his voice for Chauncey, the boy blob in that book. And I said, hired. He's he's Chauncey. He's absolutely Chauncey. For In the Lives of Puppets, I, I knew that I probably wanted Daniel to do it. But just to keep things fair, we had a couple of people audition. And I listened. I turned on Daniel's audition. In the first five seconds of that audition, he read as Nurse Ratched. And I said, hired. He's Nurse Ratched. That, that voice, even if for some reason... We had to work on any other voice that he did. His nurse ratchet sold it 100%. He's that good at what he does. And I think that he took the audiobook like he does and like Kurt does and made it his own. They He took my words and made them better than they have any right to be. They transform into another thing, but yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Wonderful. And I feel your pain so much editing the podcast and stuff like that, having to go back and just listen to myself. I 
it is the most cringe-inducing thing I've ever experienced. Can I, can I tell you why this happened to me and, and why I am this way? It's because back in the day, uh, one of my audiobooks came to me for review and I was like, oh, let me hear what this is. And I clicked right in the middle of it and it happened to open to a sex scene. And I was like, oh my God, I am gross. I am so gross. Turn it off, turn it off. And I've never been able to listen to a full audiobook uh. of my own ever since because of that moment where I was like, ew, I wrote this. <laughs> Steven and I have a joke with graphic novels, especially like the saga series and things like that, mm-hmm. where no matter what, if you are reading it in public, you are going to open it to the sex scene. That's yeah. just like oh, yeah. automatic. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. That That's how it is. That's how it is. And I've, I've, not been able to recover from that. I I still cringe thinking about that moment when I turned that on and was like, ew, ew. (laughs) So it's all about audience and timing. Who's listening with you? (laughs) There's so many people that I, that are, that love audio and that listen to the audio. And all I can think about is, are you walking through the grocery store, listening to one of my sex scenes that I wrote? That's (laughs) while you're, while you're buying like frozen chicken nuggets. That's what you're doing. <laughs> you know what? If you are, more power to you. Whatever makes you happy. Live your best life. Yeah, exactly. Who cares? Do what you want to do, man. Who is the character from In the Lives of Puppets that you are most sad to say goodbye to? Victor. I love Victor. I love Victor 100%. I adore him, not because of who he is necessarily, but because of how by the end of the book, He is standing up for himself, not as just a person, but as a human being. He is standing up for himself. If you you go through this book, again, not, not any spoilers, but if you go through this book, you will see that there's essentially two stories at work here. You have Victor's journey and the journey of this family, but there in the background, there's also this much bigger story going on about this war that is happening with with between these two factions. And we get glimpses of that, but we never see, necessarily see the front lines of any of that. And I I love that because Victor, Victor is, think about it. He is, in essence, it could be argued that he is some sort of chosen one, you know, and I, I tend to avoid that trope like the plague, but it could be argued that that he is a chosen one. But what I love about Victor is he's a chosen one who doesn't give a crap about what he's been chosen to do. He wants to get what he set out to do and then go home. He doesn't want to go explore the entire world. He, you know, when you're reading, you know, granted it's, it's wonderful. Authors again can write what you write, but you know, there was a very long time in fiction where chosen ones were always like fighting against the confines of their parents or their house. And you never let me go see the outside world. And I want to go out there. And I thought to myself, what if there was a character who doesn't want to do that? What if there was a character who is perfectly happy with what he has, has no need to go out to the outside world, doesn't want to? And what happens when that person is forced to? What happens when you take away the sanctity and safety of a home and you're putting that person out into the world? What would it look like? And I just love being able to, to see Victor grow before my eyes. I saw a quote somewhere where you say that you try to be a better writer with each book. Mm-hmm. Um, what goes into making yourself a better writer? Reading. I read a lot. I read anything and everything I can get my hands on. Fiction, nonfiction, everything. Right now I'm in the middle of reading 
um, David Grand's new nonfiction novel, The Wager. Um, David Grand wrote one of what I think is one of the best armchair adventurer books called The Lost City of Z, which is just one of my favorite, favorite books of all time. And something that really upsets me is I have heard, you would not believe how many times I have heard authors say, I don't have time to read. What? <laughs> what are you talking about? That is how we grow. That is how we become better writers. That is how we learn how other people do things. We learn new words, new phrases, new ways of doing things. And you you learn that from anything, everything that you read. You can read anything and learn something new. And I, I love that experience of being able to pick up a book and learn something new. In addition, I sometimes write stories that are just for me, exercises, uh, if you will, that I can try something that I've never tried before. For example, uh, yeah, I can talk about this. In The Lives of Puppets, I wrote a 10,000 word novella that is going to be released for free that is set within the In the Lives of Puppets universe that is set hundreds of years before In the Lives of Puppets. And it's my first attempt at writing some kind of horror. I have never written horror before. Horror is my great love. I love horror movies, horror video games, horror novels, horror television. I will consume it all. And it's been so sacrosanct to me that I've always been worried about trying something like that. But then I thought, why not? I'm not getting any younger. Might as well do what I see what happens. And I wrote a short story called Reduce, Reuse, Recycle that will be released for again for free. That is my first foray into spooky town. So I'm very excited about it. Well, now I'm really excited about it. That yeah. sounds awesome. And I can totally cool. see how that story, the pre-worlds um, kind of dividing, mm -hmm. and I can see how that could be. Yeah, that, the story is set <laughs> right when those divisions are becoming known. And mm -hmm. it is it is a very interesting exercise for me. I, I When I started that, I didn't know if it was going to be anything that I'd ever want to release, but I said, I'm going to keep it under 10,000 words because I'm a very verbose writer and I need to keep it short. And I was able to do it. And I'm very pleased and excited with awesome. how, the result. It's gonna, it's something a little different for me. It's not gory, violent horror. It's more unsettling kind of horror. And I love that. And you've mentioned tropes a little bit earlier on. What tropes in writing do you love most or dislike most, both as a writer and a reader? This is going to cause people to get up in arms. I <laughs> hate enemies to lovers. I hate it so, so much. Because if I'm reading a book that has a romantic storyline or if it's part of the story, I don't want to see those people being mean to each other or cruel. I don't like that. That makes me feel bad. I don't want to be part of that. You know, it's popular for a lot of reasons and that's good. Read Again, read what you want. But for me, I'm like, oh, why can't you guys just be nicer to each other? And again, given my love of horror, if there is a creepy child in any book, you can sure bet I'm going to read that because I, <laughs> I will. I'm like, oh, this kid is possessed or this kid is haunted or this kid is just evil. Yes, please. I will totally read that. Another thing that I absolutely 100% avoid is that there is a website called Does the Dog Die? 
And I look at if there is a dog that is featured prominently in any promotion, whether it be for a book, a movie, a television show, and I want to watch or read it, I will go onto this website to spoil myself that if the dog dies, and if the dog does die, I won't watch it or I won't consume it. It's just my thing. I can't do it. That happened. If you've ever seen the film, I Am Legend with Will Smith about the post, you know what happens in that movie. And I did not know that was going to happen in that movie. And I have never watched a movie again where a dog or something like that happens because I just can't do that. That's not nice. Don't do that. To share my personal life and experience with this, this website myself, my wife and I were in the theater watching, I want to say it was um, Ready or Not, and we saw a preview for Crawl, which is a hurricane movie. where About the alligator? Uh, yes. Yeah. And yeah, there's yeah, a yeah. dog swimming in the water. Yep. It was just a trailer. Yep. And I look over and there's my wife. She's on the phone just from that trailer. She yep. needed to know whether or not that dog died. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I thought when you, when you were first talking about going to the theater, I thought you were going to say, yeah, we were seeing something like Marley and me. And I was like, why would you do that to yourselves? Why would you do that? <laughs> to, to, to kind of show how far... I have just got her to watch the first John Wick this week. Oh no! Yeah, that's that. That's rough, man. But that I'm like, I'm like, I, I went in. I'm like, hey, this is the plot of the movie. Mm-hmm. It, it's all vengeance. She's having to Google, you know, whether uh, about Daisy, whose real name is Andy, and yeah. whether where this dog is now. You can you can let her know that it doesn't happen in any of the other movies. Yep. And I will tell you if you want to make her feel better. You can let her know that I too watched John Wick, but I fast forwarded through that part until <laughs> I got to the good part because I wanted to see Keanu Reeves do stuff in slow motion, but I did not want to see anything happen to a dog. And my brother told me later that the scene is actually pretty bad. <laughs> I was like, why would you do that? Why would you do that? It, it, she says it, and she, we got through it and she's like, it's, the movie has the best ending ever because at the end he walks away with a, a, a rescue dog. Exactly. <laughs> and that rescue dog stays in the rest of the series. <laughs> and it's wonderful. All I know is that if anything, if anybody did anything to my dog, I fully support going John Wick. So, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So coming off, uh, off that, we promised a little bit of fun. So we have a game that I have been, I can't call it what most people normally call it, but we call it Kiss, Mary Ditch. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, the way we play it is I've got a couple categories here that I've, I'm going to give some titles for. They're going to be very vague, but they'll give you a hint of what's inside of it. You're going to choose one of those categories and inside it are three items that you're going to give a like, a love, and then one to get rid of. Okay. So your categories are... I'll take the scares. Nothing good happens in Boston. Getting comfortable. What about Bob or do androids dream of? I'll take the scares. All right. We are going to rank horror movies. Yes. Okay. Good, 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 (laughs) good, good, good. So we got Exorcist, Psycho, and Alien. Oh, man, you suck. Every one of these categories come from a lot of painful research where I was going to make you suffer through any of them. Oh, no. Okay. What were the terms that I use? Like, love, and get rid of. Kiss, Mary, bitch. Okay. Mary, alien. Kiss, psycho, get rid of the exorcist. Oh, okay. I do not like religion or religious horror. That is the most boring thing to me in the world. Like when somebody's like, oh no, we need to get an exorcist in here. I'm like, blah. (laughs) 
Like The Conjuring is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. I stop watching at the last 10% because I don't need to see the exorcism crap. Mm-hmm. That stuff bores me. Ugh. Yeah. It but still, The Exorcist is a good movie. It's a good movie. <laughs> it's a wonderful movie. I just, religious horror is just, I have enough horror from religion in my lifetime. I don't <laughs> need it. <laughs> to kind of give you what you missed out on, nothing good happens yeah. in Boston. We would have made you rank some teas. Uh, do Android Dream of? We would have made you rank fictional robots. Ooh. Getting comfortable is I, I I know some comfort reads that you like and some books that you really enjoy and writers that you like. So I would have made you choose. Uh, so, okay, do it, do it, do that one real quick. Uh, Dean Koontz Intensity, Boys Life, Robert McNannan, and The Stand by Stephen King. Get rid of intensity. Really? Uh, yeah, it's a good book. Don't get me wrong. I love that book because it's it's one of the few. Um, Dean Koontz books that doesn't heavily rely on dialogue. It's mostly action. And I think it's wonderful. And it also makes me wonder what happened to Dean Koontz post 2000, because I'm like, your books aren't the same anymore. And I don't know what happened, but yes. And then I would absolutely, um, Stephen King, which is, he's my favorite. He's my boy. Long live the King. And what about Bob? We've got some Bob Burgers episodes. We would have ranked <gasps> the favorites. I love this game. You're yes, so see? good at this. <laughs> this is wonderful. That is the best TV show in the world. You guys did your homework. I, you know, you know, I might have sat through many hours of, of, of you talking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and the house in the Cerulean Sea is like my top go-to gift for friends and family probably the book I've purchased the most copies of personally, mm-hmm. which is kind of fun. And I know you mentioned that your audience is primarily, you know, the queer community, but it is also one where like I gave it to my dad, I've given it mm-hmm. to lots of family outside of the queer community and is such a good title for a sweet love story. So what is the importance of that in having such a broad audience? Um, I think it's just lovely. Yeah, we recently uh, in March went on the third anniversary, we got to announce that the book had sold 1 million copies in North America, which is extraordinary. I just, the tale that that book has had, I just don't understand. I mean, especially because, you know, you have to think about that it came out March 17th of 2020. That was the week the pandemic exploded in the United States. And here I was trying to hawk a book about kindness and the Antichrist. <laughs> I just didn't know. <laughs> I, I, you know, it, it felt weird. And then, Eight months after it was released, it appeared on the New York's bestseller list for the first time. And then it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that book has brought me so much. And it's just been a lovely experience to see that. And I think the one thing that I have heard from people from all walks of life about that novel is that, A, yeah, it gave a lot of people an, an escape during the pandemic. But I have had more straight people reach out to me than any other book I've written about that book. I've had dads reach out to me after one reading that book with their daughters. I've had grandparents reach out to me after reading the books with their grandkids. I've had kids reach out to me who've read the book with their parents. I had a child, an eight-year-old boy whose dad was writing to me on his behalf where he essentially gave me this huge stream of consciousness book report on my own book. And then towards the end, it shifted. And he said that, and this was when we were deep in the pandemic, he said that this book, he hadn't been able to see his friends and he'd been feeling very lonely and that this book made him feel like he had his friends with him again and that he wasn't lonely as much as lonely as he used to be. And at the end of the day, that is just an extraordinary thing to hear, to, to know that 
I've affected one person that way is mind boggling to me. When I first set out to write a book, I told myself if at least one person walked away from what I wrote, learning something new, then I've done the job that I set out to do. And the house in the Cerulean Sea has helped me do that job more times over than I ever thought possible. And the love that people have for that book and the love that people have those for those characters is almost rivals mine because I have spent years with those characters and I know every facet of their personalities. And I, I just, I love them desperately. I love them desperately, especially Chauncey. He's my favorite. He's my boy. <laughs> and Lucy, I really enjoyed when you were mentioning your favorite um, tropes. I was like, oh, yeah. that's Lucy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He, Lucy is, Lucy is, I knew going into it that Lucy was going to be a lot of people's favorites. And I'm not, I have no problem with that whatsoever. He is, I mean, come on, he's a six-year-old antichrist. Is there a difference in the approach that you use between writing adult and young adult? No, not really. Obviously, well, thinking about, you know, if I'm writing a sex scene into a book, I'm not necessarily going to be writing a sex scene into a book like The House in the Cerulean Sea. But my young adult series, The Extraordinaries, that had um, very pro-sex conversations. There was there were sex positive conversations, conversations about consent and boundaries. And the reason I did that was because queer kids don't get sex education in America. They have, if they do have sex education in schools, they have straight sex education. So where are they supposed to go? The internet? That's, that you could go into very dangerous places there. So I wanted to write a young adult series that was sex positive, that discussed, you know, no pun intended, the ins and out of, of queer sex. And not only that, but protecting yourself and protecting your partner or partners. And what's so funny about that is even though I've written books like The House in the Cerulean Sea that are queer focused, and even though I've written books like The Extraordinaries, which are queer focused and queer sex focused, none of these books have been challenged and banned the way that others have. And you, it makes you wonder, why is that? Why is it that, that these books don't have the same uh, issues that a bunch of other books are having in my community? And I know what it is. I know the answer to that is because I'm a safe gay. I'm a cis white gay guy. I'm safe. I'm a safe gay. When you look at what the books that are the most banned and challenged, you know, that the American Library Association releases, you will see that most of those books are written by queer authors of color, or they're written by trans authors or trans authors of color. That is why those communities, those authors are more affected because it's not about saving the children. It's about racism and misogyny and transphobia, pure and simple. So House in the Cerulean Sea, Under the Whispering Door, and In the Lives of Puppets, you wrote all before you released Cerulean Sea in 2020. You write fast. And mm -hmm. what is it like having these finished novels, but waiting for that staggered release date? It is excruciating. What a lot of people don't understand is that when you release a book, that book has been finished and done for a long time, especially if it's in traditional publishing with, you know, rather than indie publishing, indie publishing is much quicker because A, there's not really a marketing lead up time because many indie publishers don't have the marketing budget to actually do a whole lot with that. And there's this idea in the indie publishing scene that if you don't release a new book, people are going to forget who you are because literally there are thousands of books published every single week, especially now with the advent of Amazon publishing, which anybody and anyone can, can publish a book on Amazon. And it's even getting to the point now where you have 
people claiming to be authors who are using artificial intelligence to write books and release them and, and post those online and claim that those are books. That's not how that works. That's not how any of that works. It's important for me to have people understand that when an author releases a book with traditional publishing, there's usually two years between when a book is submitted and when a book is actually published, because not only does there need to be editing, but with newer authors, newer authors to bigger publishers specifically, they want to get have lead time to lead up, to give you enough time to get your name out there, to do marketing, to go to events, to do all these different panels and everything like that. And then when your book comes out, that's when it's kind of like the end of everything at that point. It's it's the finale. And so right now I have three or four novels that have not been announced that are already finished that are going to be coming out. I mean, I have books, I think right now written through 2027. I used to release more books a year, but that was when A, I was younger and less tired and B, I was in the indie scene, again, with the mindset, whether incorrect or correct, that I had to keep going. I had to get my name out there. Now, a publisher, a traditional publisher, and I won't speak for any other one, so let me just use mine as an example, they would never want me to release two or three books in a year, brand new novels, because they would cannibalize each other. So mm -hmm. for this year, for example, we, re we released In the Lives of Puppets, my big brand new novel in April, and then this summer, we're doing the re-release of the Green Creek series, the first two books of that. And that's three books in one year. That is a lot. That is a lot. But since these are re-releases, Wolf Song and Raven Song, those are re being re-released in hardcover this summer. I don't have to do as much for those because it's already, those books have already been out. And what we're doing now is just trying to get new readers while my old readers get to mock all of the new readers who are coming in who don't know that they're about to be emotionally devastated by a bunch of dumb werewolves. There's a, there's a lot of lead up time and a lot of waiting. It can be, you have to be patient. You have to be very, very patient because release dates can shift or even when they don't shift, you may find yourself releasing a book right at the start of a global wide pandemic. So what's the general amount of time that you take to finish something? I usually can write a book if I've done all my research, usually between three and six months is how long it takes me to write a, a novel. And obviously you said you get a lot of projects that are, that you're, you're full up through 2027 here. Uh, how many well, projects do you juggle at a time? One. I can only do one project at a time. My ADHD would not allow me to do another one. I, I have to do that. I can, I can research multiple things, maybe two or three at a time, but I cannot write more than one book at a time. It's like, I can't read more than one book at a time. The people who can read multiple books, I'm like, how do you do this? <laughs> And we are a library podcast. So how have libraries impacted your life? As I mentioned before, I grew up in Oregon in a very poor rural setting with a family who made fun of me for reading and writing. My, my love, I learned very early on that if something brought me joy, it was something that could be taken away from me. So the Douglas County Library in Roseburg, Oregon, is the, um, one of the first places in my life that I ever felt safe. And I would, no joke, bike there every day during the summer to get there when the library opened and leave when the library closed. And all I would do is read over and, and anything I could get my hands on, fiction, nonfiction. It didn't matter if it was well above my reading level. I read it. I didn't, even if I didn't understand it, like we mentioned the stand earlier that Stephen King's The Stand. I read the complete and uncut edition of The Stand, that 1500 page brick when I was 11. 
I didn't understand half of what I was reading. I didn't understand a lot. I should not have been reading that what I was reading. But when you're a kid of the 80s and 90s, chances are you read Stephen King before you were supposed to. And my librarian was actually the first person I came out to. And she started giving me books with queer people in them. But again, the 90s. So keep in mind what that might have entailed. Libraries are the backbones of communities. Libraries are, are a, a community cannot survive without a library. And people who just think libraries are all about checking out books have not been to a library in a long time because libraries are not only there for books, but they're also there for many other services up to and including access to the internet for people who might not have that. You know, libraries can be used for people who are, need to search for jobs. They need to come to the library to be able to use the internet to search for a job. That is important. That is a fundamental right to be able to have Libraries are a necessity and librarians are right now at the front lines of a culture war that they asked for no part of, but are still taking up arms to help our community fight back because the right and access to books should never be in question ever. Got a series of rapid fire questions. I'm going to okay. put a minute on the clock and we're going to try to get through as many of these as we can. Got it. Do you learn by watching or doing? Doing. Do you correct people's grammar? No. Uh, Sci-fi or horror? Horror. Um, Deo or jump in the line? Jump in the line. Link or Mario? Link. Come on, man. I have a Zelda tattoo. Come know. on. <laughs> a place you've wanted to visit but haven't? Uh, New Zealand. Something you wish you had done? I wish I had fought harder for the a version of In the Lives of Puppets that does not exist. Coolest thing that you've learned for a story? Death doulas exist. Oh, yeah. Doulas that help with birthing the process. There are also doulas that help with the grieving and death process. And I find that to be absolutely beautiful. Least favorite word? Oh, my God. My least favorite word? No. <laughs> and we're right at a minute, but I got to have this answer. Uh, who's a better Lestat, Sam Reed or Tom Cruise? Sam Reed. Yeah. I that Tom Cruise movie, they were like, well, we're kind of gay, but not really. And then this, the, the television show is like, here, everybody's gay. <laughs> and what are you currently reading slash watching? I know you're reading The Wager. Yeah, I'm reading The Wager. I want to read also, that. I also just finished a really, really wonderful, weird horror novel called Ascension by Nicholas Binge about uh, the tallest mountain in the world that suddenly appears in the middle of the ocean one day and nobody knows why it's there and what it is. It's very weird and very, very good. Um, I just finished watching Succession. I had I'd heard a lot about the show. I'd never seen any of the seasons and I heard it was coming to, the, to an end. And that's really the only kind of TV shows I watch these days are ones that are already over. So I'm not like getting invested and then all of a sudden Netflix cancels it after one or two seasons. So I watched Succession and I thought, okay, all I know is that this show is about rich white people who want to destroy each other. And so let's see if I can stomach this because, you know, come on, I don't need to see rich white people doing anything, anything at all. But I actually enjoyed it. There was not a redeemable character in that entire show, but it was a lot funnier than I was expecting it to be. I laughed at all of their misfortune. And then the ending was really effective. I thought it was, it was sad and it was demoralizing, but it was the only thing that made sense for all those characters. So I highly recommend it. If you can stomach rich white people doing bad things 
every single episode. There's not one person in that entire show that you will root for. If you think there is, just wait an episode. They will be bad by the next time. We kind of use this as a gauge of what's coming up. Strangest thing in your search history. <laughs> you know what? Honestly, I would get... Con- I always have this weird, horrific nightmare about the FBI showing up at my door because I had to Google things like how to make a bomb or how to do this or how to do that. The latest thing in my search history um, that I got that I thought of, well, this is kind of weird if anybody saw this, is how long does it take for octopus to grow back their arms if they get chopped off? Good. Well, how long? <laughs> I haven't gotten that far yet because I looked that up right before we started. <laughs> <laughs> we'll check back in later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Sarah is uh, scared of me asking this question, but I, I want to ask it. She's afraid I'm going to jinx us. In two weeks, we are going to be interviewing V.E. Schwab. Okay. What's something we should ask her? You should ask her what she called me when we did an event together uh, for Under the Whispering Door. We did a virtual event together and she had this idea that we would have our teas coming up, uh, that we should make our own tea while we did the panel as in conjunction of the book. And she had these huge, amazing, fancy teas. And I had my Bigelow orange spice rind tea and she called me a very well-deserved name. Two, oh, two words. She, it's two words. See if she can remember what she called me. Because <laughs> let me tell you, when V.E. Schwab calls you this, yeah, never forget. <laughs> I've got an idea what it is. Yeah. Oh, it's funny. I, I, it was the funniest thing. One of the funniest things that's ever happened to me. And now every time we see each other, I remind her of what she called me. And it is wonderful. So as we wrap up here, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? Yeah. Support your libraries, support them. I I've talked at length about how important libraries are, but again, I cannot stress enough how much dangers especially smaller libraries and small towns are in at the current moment. You have librarians who work day in and day out to want to bring in books and access to their communities. But there are groups of right-wing fundamentalists who believe that books should not be able to be for everyone. And they are. They absolutely are. So make sure that you are getting involved with your library. And not only that, if a referendum comes up on your library because people aren't happy about what they stock in their library, make sure that you are going out and reminding people they need to vote to keep their library open. Because once you lose your library, your, the soul of your town is lost. We definitely need our advocates. And both Stephen and I are in the South, Florida here. Yeah. Uh, oh, so then yes, you absolutely know. You absolutely know. <laughs> you what appreciate I'm the about. support. Yes, yes. Libraries have been there for me since I was a kid, and I'm always going to be there for libraries. We really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us. And um, I've loved everything I've read of yours so far. So I can't wait to read what's coming up in the future. And I am behind on the Wolf Song and the the new series that you're coming out what re-releasing. So yeah. I'll have to add that to my queue. Well, when when you get to it, please understand that I will not be paying for your therapy. It's oh, just no. not something I can do, <laughs> but you will need it. You will need okay. it. Because I, love, I love the, I love these books because people are like, oh, look, TJ Klune wrote a new book. Oh, it's about werewolves. How cozy. No, uh-uh. not a cozy. sorry, guys. Sorry. Sorry. I'm going to, I'm going to punch your soul. 
<laughs> oh, you're breaking away from the cozy a little bit with the horror novella. Yeah, and, you know, it's, yeah. it's good. You know, I'm, I'm thinking that that if anybody ever looks at my legacy after I'm gone, if anybody gives a crap about it at all, they're going to see like the 2020s. Oh, TJ was nice. And then everything went to crap and he started <laughs> being cruel to all of his characters. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I love it. Once again, thank you. Thank you. This has been such a treat. I've been looking forward. Well, thank you very much. But this has been thank you, Stephen, and thank you, Sarah. If you guys need anything, just let me know. But I really appreciate the conversation, and you guys are amazing people. Thank you so much, TJ, for joining us on Unstacked. In the Lives of Puppets is available in the library collection for checkout. It can also be purchased at your favorite bookstore and online vendors. Check out his website, tjcloonbooks.com. That's T-J-K-L-U-N-E-B-O-O-K-S.com. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye.